On a dangerous seacoast where shipwrecks often occur, there once was a crude little life-saving station. The building was just a hut, and there was only one boat. A few devoted members kept a constant watch over the sea and, with no thought for themselves, went out day and night, tirelessly searching for the lost. Many lives were saved by this wonderful little life-saving station, so it became famous. Some of those who were saved, various others in the surrounding area, wanted to become associated with the station and give some of their time and their money and their effort supported the work. New boats were bought, and new life-saving crews were trained, and the little life-saving station grew. Some members of the life-saving station were unhappy that the building was so crude and poorly equipped. They felt a more comfortable place should be provided as the first refuge of those saved from the sea. So they replaced the emergency cots and beds and put better furniture in the enlarged building. Now the life-saving station became a popular gathering place for its members, and they decorated it beautifully and furnished it exquisitely because they used it as sort of a club. Fewer members were now interested in going to sea on life-saving missions, so they hired lifeboat crews to do this work. The life-saving motifs still prevailed in the club's decoration, and there was a ceremonial lifeboat in the room where the club held its initiations. About this time, a large ship wrecked off the hired crews brought in loads of cold, wet, half-drowned people. They were dirty and sick, and some of them had black skin, and some had yellow skin, and some had brown skin. And the beautiful club was now considerably messed up because they were so dirty. So the property committee immediately had a shower house built outside the club where the victims of the shipwrecks could be cleaned up before coming inside. At the next meeting, there was a split in the club membership. Some of the members wanted to stop the life-saving activities as being and a hindrance to the normal social life of the club. Some members insisted upon life as their primary purpose and pointed out that they're still called the life-saving station. They were voted down and told if they wanted to save lives of the various kinds of people who were shipwrecked in the waters, they could begin their own life-saving station down the coast, which they did. As the years went by and the new station experienced the same kinds of changes that occurred, occurred in the old, okay. So the years went by and some of the same uh, kinds of things went on in the new club uh, that uh, the new life-saving station that occurred in the old. And so history repeated itself, and there was another life-saving station to open up, and history repeated itself over and over and over. And today, if you visit that coast, you will find a number of, a number of exclusive clubs along the shore. Shipwrecks are still frequent in those waters, and most of the people drown. I think you get the point. I hope you get the point. We're here this morning to examine and consider some doctrinal issues, and our prayer is that it's not done in a vacuum. 
Our purpose is to equip, exalt, encourage, and to enable us to be more effective evangelists and disciple makers. That is our life-saving purpose. Our commission, given by the Lord himself, is to go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. So our goal, through this class and other activities, is to grow in our knowledge of God and the salvation he's provided us, to be able to worship him in truth and more deeply, and to be able to more clearly communicate and explain the gospel to others and thereby make disciples. Just like a life-saving boat crew has to be adept at tying knots, casting ropes, resuscitation techniques, and many other skills, we too have to be good communicators of the truth so we can preach the word. Someone once said, if you can't clearly explain what you know, you don't really understand what you know. So that is our goal this morning, to know and understand at a deeper level the doctrine of election. So let's see if we can get this running. Okay, so we're going to look at the doctrine of election. Some of the resources that you might want to consider, because we're just barely going to scratch the surface of this, uh, are some books. Uh, of course, The Cross and Salvation by Bruce Demarest, uh, Basic Doctrine by Charles Ryrie, uh, Bible Doctrine by Wayne Grudem, Chosen by God, excellent book by R.C. Sproul, And, of course, our own Bible Training Institute that Steve uh, conducts here uh, coming up again Tuesday. Even though his own representation of the doctrine was flawed, the theologian Karl Barth regarded the importance of this doctrine in the overall scheme of salvation in this way. The doctrine of election is the sum of the gospel. So... I want to stimulate your thinking a little bit since we're not going to be able to cover this exhaustively. And um, in the book, uh, Cross and Salvation, uh, there are a number of questions posed, which I think are worthy uh, of us uh, considering here this morning. One is, does election concern God's appointment of some persons to service only, to salvation or to both. Secondly, is election conditional based on God's foresight of a person's response to the gospel, or is it unconditional, grounded entirely on God's sovereign will? This question asks whether logically divine election follows human faith or whether faith follows election. If election is unconditional, how does this doctrine differ from the pagan determinism or Islamic fatalism. If election is passive, being God's ratification of the human decision to trust Christ, or is it active, being God's sovereign determination to save some? Is election to salvation corporate, meaning a group of people, or individual, or is it maybe both? Does God's elective decree concern the class of those who will believe, or does it 
pertain to some specific individuals whom God has foreknown and chosen. And this prompts the question as to whether election rests on God's prescience or his foreknowledge. What does Scripture mean when it affirms that God foreknows the saints? Does it mean that God in his omniscience foresees the human responses of faith or even at a deeper level is foreknowledge a biblical idiom that God has used to graciously in referring to God graciously setting his love upon and choosing sinners to be saved? Is divine election single into eternal life or double into eternal life and eternal death? And we'll look at that a little bit deeper as we go on this morning. Does the doctrine of unconditional election to salvation necessitate as a corollary unconditional election to damnation? And that's the doctrine of reprobation, which we will, as I said, examine it a little bit more. How did saints of the past, such as Luther, Calvin, Owen, Bunyan, uh, justify biblically their belief in double predestination? Does the Old Testament present a different perspective on the doctrine of election than the New Testament, and if so, in what respect? How shall we respond to objections that the doctrine of unconditional election is unfair and ultimately unworthy of God? Does the doctrine of unconditional election clash with the character of God as biblically revealed? What are the practical values and consolations of the doctrine of election for believers? We'll consider that right at the end also. So there are all different types of election that we could consider. Steve does an excellent job of giving a a big overview of that in BTI, and you can go online and pull some of that information up and take a look at it. I'm going to touch on just a few of those uh, areas uh, in the next few minutes uh, for consideration. One uh, is the conditional election uh, that's embraced by what we'd cl- call classical Ar- uh, Arminianism. Uh, and many church fathers uh, uh, held to this view uh, in order to avoid the, the pagan fatalism and some determinism that uh, stressed the freedom of the human will and its uh, ability to repent and exercise faith. So that's the way they looked at it. A number of pre-Augustinian authorities viewed salvation synergistically, the human will cooperating with the Holy Spirit to the attainment of salvation. Origen held that the predestination language of the Bible encouraged fatalism. Thus, he based election on divine foreknowledge of free human actions. He wrote this, Foreknowledge precedes foreordination. God observed beforehand the sequence of future events and noticed the inclination of some men towards piety, which followed on this inclination. And he knew, and he foreknew them, knowing the present and foreknowing the future. If anyone In reply, ask whether it's possible for the events which God foreknew not to happen. We shall answer yes. And there is no necessity determining this happening or not happening. 
So he had a view that's a little different than uh, what we might hold to. Another view that a lot of the the contemporary Arminians hold to today is what we'd call a corporate election. And this view represents a refinement of that traditional or old Arminian view of conditional election. They would deny the radical depravity of sinners and the unconditional election of individuals to be saved. And this school of thought affirms that God wills to save all people and that Christ died for all. So the evangelical interpreters view election passively as God's purpose to save the class of people who trust Christ. In other words, election is a statement about the divine plan of salvation. It concerns God's appointment of the believing community to salvation. Accordingly, this uh, dynamic where sinners come to Christ lies not with God himself, but with the sinner themselves. So what do we teach here? Well, let's take a look at that. So this is from our statement of faith. So let's just read through this. We won't go through all the scripture references. You can write some of these down and take a look at it or pull this back up online. We teach that election is the act of God by which, before the foundation of the world, he chose in Christ those whom he graciously regenerates, saves, and sanctifies. We teach that sovereign election does not contradict or negate the responsibility of man to repent and trust Christ as Savior and Lord. Nevertheless, since sovereign grace includes the means of receiving the gift of salvation as well as the gift itself, sovereign election will result in what God determines. All whom the Father calls to himself will come in faith, and all who come in faith the Father will receive. We teach that the unmerited favor that God grants to totally depraved sinners is not related in any initiative on their own part nor in God's anticipation of what they might do by their own will, but is solely of his sovereign grace and mercy. We teach that election should not be looked upon based merely on abstract sovereignty, God is truly sovereign, but he exercises this sovereignty in harmony with his other attributes, especially his omniscience, justice, holiness, wisdom, grace, and love. This sovereignty will always exalt the will of God in a manner totally consistent with his character as revealed in the life of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, That's the base from which we operate and what we teach. And let's take a look at how personal election is presented in the New Testament. That is a major theme. We can find in the teachings of Jesus and the apostles evidence of personal, unconditional election. In the parable of the workers in the vineyard in Matthew 20, the Lord taught, 
that God is not obligated to deal with everyone in the same way. To those who objected that they worked all day but received the same wage as those who worked but one hour, Jesus inferred that none get less than they deserve, justice, but some get more than they deserve, grace. It is not unjust of God to give some more than they are due. John emphasized God's sovereign choice of certain persons to be saved, and this is clear in the Gospel of John, chapter 5, verse 21, where Jesus said to the Jews, Just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. Likewise, in John 13, 18, Jesus said to the disciples, I am not referring to all of you. I know those I have chosen. The Lord chose 12 as a group for ministry, but uh, prior to that, he chose each one individually, except for Judas, to salvation. Then in John 10, which we're not going to read through this morning for a lack of time, but Jesus identified himself as the shepherd and his elect people as the sheep, which you're, I'm sure, familiar with. John drew several important conclusions concerning the revelation, uh, the relationship between the shepherd and the sheep as follows. Number one, the sheep are those people whom the Father specifically has given the Son, and that's in verse 29. The fact that God has gifted certain persons to the Son is reiterated in chapter 17, uh, verses 2, 6, 9, and so forth, and the frequency of this uh, reference suggests that this was an important concept that John was trying to communicate. Jesus taught even more specifically in John 6, uh, 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me. That is, they will believe and be saved. Concerning the sheep, the Father chose them out of the world for the possession and the service of the Son. Uh, in John fifteen nineteen, Christ chose the disciples out of the word world for salvation and service, and D.A. Carson has to say about that, that they are Christ-obedient sheep in his salvific purpose before they are his sheep in obedient practice. So they were saved both to salvation eternally, and they are also uh, chosen uh, for their uh, service to Christ. Secondly, the shepherd died to achieve the salvation of the sheep, and that's in verse 11 and 15. The third, the shepherd knows his sheep and calls them by name. Fourth, the sheep know the voice of the shepherd and follow him. Jesus said of those not his sheep, you do not believe because you are not my sheep. We might have expected Jesus to say, you are not my sheep because you don't believe. But he said precisely the opposite. A sinner does not become a sheep by believing in Jesus. Rather, he believes in Jesus because he was first appointed by God as one of the sheep. Fifth, Jesus 
said, I have other sheep that are not of the sheep pen. I must bring them also. In verse 16. And that refers to specific Gentiles who by law, essentially, belonged to Christ by divine election, even though they actually had not yet come to faith. In all of these texts that we talk about in this passage, the sheep are not an empty class of people, for they are said to, first of all, hear, secondly, to know, third, to believe, then to trust, then to follow, and finally, to love the shepherd, all of which are individual actions before being considered as actions of a group or a class. Another passage dealing with the election, with election um, quite extensively is in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. Let's uh, read through that quickly. It says, Blessed be the Father, be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us and the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace which he has lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire the possession of it to the praise of his glory. So in that passage, we see the following. Number one, Let's take a look at this. We see the source of our election. God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Election is a monergistic operation of God, not a synergism that involves our participation. Secondly, the fact of election. We were chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. That's a choice grounded in God's sovereign purpose. Third, the time of election from eternity past, before the foundation of the world. And that's repeated in a number of other places throughout uh, the New Testament. Salvation is the unfolding of God's eternal purpose. Fourth, the objects of election. That's us, we. Paul envisioned the elect both in their corporate standing as the church and in their individuality. 
The New Testament designates Christians as believers, saints, and elect. No one doubts that it's the individual that believes and is sanctified. So ultimately, it is the individual who is loved and chosen by God. Luther captured this individual dimension of salvation, uh, often obscured by those that advocated a corporate or class election when he wrote, you must do your own believing as you must do your own dying. Fifth, the sphere of election in Christ. Arminians would interpret in Christ as elect according to our quality as believers. Predestination in Christ, however, affirms God's purpose to affect salvation through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Christ is the medium for the imparting of grace. The The phrase, in Christ, positively excludes a work-related or work-affected salvation. Six, the motive of election, God's freely conceived and unconditional love. So Paul wrote, in love he predestined us. Seven, the impartiality of election in accordance with the pleasure, his pleasure and will. God's choice was not motivated by the faintest hint of any kind of favoritism. And finally, eighth, the goal of election that believers might be holy and blameless in his sight and that they might live to the praise of his glorious grace. The outcome, not the condition of election, is righteousness of life for us all. In Shakespeare's Macbeth, the witch's chant, double, double, toil and trouble, fire burn and cauldron bubble. And so R.C. Sproul in his book, uh, Chosen by God, starts out a particular section here with the question, double, double, toil and trouble, is predestination double? This is a topic that often causes a lot of angst in believers, double predestination. The very words sound ominous, like the witch's chant. It is the one thing to contemplate, it's one thing to contemplate God's gracious plan of salvation for the elect, but what about those who are not elect? Are they also predestined? Is there a horrible decree of reprobation? Does God destine some unfortunate people to hell? These questions immediately come to the fore as soon as double predestination is mentioned. Such questions should uh, or tend to make some uh, declare the concept of double predestination just out of bounds. We're not going to talk about it. Um, we, inf- you know, they're going to say that they emphatically b- believe in single predestination. That is, while believing that some are predestined to salvation, there is no need to suppose that others are likewise predestined to damnation. In short, the idea is that some are predestined to salvation, but everyone has an opportunity to be saved. God makes sure that some make it by providing extra help, but the rest of mankind still have a chance. 
Though there is a strong sentiment to speak of single predestination only and to avoid any discussion of double predestination, we must still take a look at this and consider that concept. Unless we conclude that every human being is predestined to salvation, we must face the flip side of election. If there is such a thing as predestination at all, and if that predestination does not include all people, then we must not shrink from the the necessary inference that there are two sides of this uh, issue. It's not enough to talk about Jacob. We've also got to talk about Esau. Sproul talks about this in in the concept or in this framework um, of ultimacy. There are different views of this double predestination. One of these is so frightening that many shun the term altogether, lest their view of the doctrine be confused with that scary one. Uh, This is called the equal ultimacy view in his language. Equal ultimacy is based on a concept of symmetry. It seeks a complete balance between election and reprobation. The the key idea is this, just as God intervenes in the lives of the elect to create, create faith in their hearts, so God equally intervenes in the lives of the reprobate to create or work unbelief in their hearts. This idea of God actively working unbelief in the hearts of the reprobate is drawn from biblical statements about God hardening people's hearts. Equal ultimacy is sometimes called hyper-Calvinism, and you may have heard that term in the double predestination it was um, the double predestination that's uh, uh, encompassed in that uh, thinking was actually condemned in the second council of orange in the year 529 to understand this we've got to look at a crucial distinction between positive and negative decrees of God positive has to do with God's active intervention in the hearts of the elect. Negative has to do with God passing over the elect, the non-elect. What is often called the reform view, and I'm going to have to put labels on this, and I don't necessarily like these labels, but for the sake of discussion, we're going to use them. So the reform view teaches that God positively or actively intervenes in the lives of the elect to ensure their salvation. The rest of mankind, God leaves to themselves. He does not create unbelief in their heart. That unbelief is already there. He does not coerce them to sin. They sin by their own choices. In the Reformed view, the doctrine, uh, the view uh, of that decree of election is uh, positive. The decree of reprobation is negative. Hyper-Calvinism's view of double predestination may be called positive-positive predestination, and the reform view would be called positive-negative. So let's take a look at this in kind of a chart form so it makes more sense. So you see on the left there the reform view where there's a positive-negative, positive where God acts in the hearts of those he's elected and passes over those that he has not elected. And the hyper-Calvinist would say it's a positive-positive view. So we have asymmetrical versus symmetrical. And unequal ultimacy 
versus equal ultimacy. And God passes over the reprobate, but in the hyper-Calvinist view, God works the unbelief in the hearts of the reprobate. So uh, that chart really helps for I'm visual, and it helps me to understand those two different views and why um, we would hold to that hyper-Calvinist view as not being correct. Because the error of hyper-Calvinism is that it involves God in coercing sin. This does radical violence to the integrity of God's character. The primary biblical example that might tempt one towards this view is the case of Pharaoh. Repeatedly, we we read in Exodus that God hardened the heart of Pharaoh. God told Moses ahead of time that he would do this. In Exodus 7, verses 2 through 5, we read, You shall speak, he's talking to Moses, You shall speak all that I command you, and Aaron your brother shall speak to Pharaoh that he must send the children of Israel out of the land, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart and multiply my signs and my wonders in the lands of Egypt. But Pharaoh will not heed you, so that I may lay my hand on Egypt and bring my armies and my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great judgments. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand on Egypt and bring out the children of Israel from among them. So the Bible is clearly teaching that God did, in fact, harden Pharaoh's heart. Now, we know that God did this for his own glory and is assigned to both Israel and Egypt, and we know that God's purpose in all of this was a redemptive purpose, but we are still left with a problem here. God hardened Pharaoh's heart, then judged Pharaoh for a sin. How can God hold Pharaoh or anyone else accountable for sin that flows out of a heart that God himself hardened? Well, there's only two ways that he could have hardened Pharaoh's heart, actively or passively. Active hardening would involve God's direct intervention within the inner chambers of Pharaoh's heart. God would intrude into Pharaoh's heart and create fresh evil in it. This would certainly ensure that Pharaoh would bring forth the result that God was looking for. However, it would also ensure that God is the author of sin. Passive hardening is a totally different story. Passive hardening involves a divine judgment upon sin that's already present. All that God needs to do to harden the heart of a person whose heart is already desperately wicked is to give him over to his sin. We find this concept of divine judgment repeatedly throughout Scripture. How does this work? To understand it uh, properly, we must look at another concept, God's common grace. If you were able to attend the wedding Friday night, you heard uh, Steve talk about uh, common grace at length uh, during his sermon during that wedding ceremony. This refers to the grace that God, that all men commonly the grace of God that all men commonly enjoy, the rain that refreshes the earth and the waters, and waters are crops falls upon the just and the unjust alike. The unjust certainly do not deserve such benefits, but enjoy them anyway. So it is with sunshine and rainbows. Our world is a theater of common grace. One of the most important elements of common grace we enjoy is the restraint of evil in the world. That restraint flows from many sources. Evil is restrained by policemen, laws, public opinion, 
balances of power and so forth. Through the world we live, though the world we live in is filled with wickedness, it is not as wicked as it possibly could be. God uses the means mentioned above as well as other means to keep evil in check. By his grace, he controls and bridles the amount of evil in the world. If evil were left totally unchecked, then life on this planet would be near impossible. All that God has to do to harden people's heart is to remove the restraints. He gives them a longer leash. Rather than restricting their freedom, he increases it. He lets them have their own way. In a sense, he gives them enough rope to hang themselves. It's not God that puts his hand on them to create fresh evil in their hearts. He merely removes his holy hand of restraint from them and lets them do what they want. If we were to determine the most wicked, the most diabolical men of human history, like just in the last century, Hitler or Stalin, we realize what these people have in common. They were all dictators. They had virtually unlimited power and authority within their sphere of influence. Why do we say that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely? We know parenthetically that this has no reference to God, but only to the power and corruption of men. But power corrupts precisely because it raises a person above the normal restraints that restrict the rest of us. I am restrained by conflicts of interest with people who are as powerful or more powerful than I am. We learn early in life to restrict our belligerence towards those who are bigger than we are. We tend to enter into conflicts selectively. I'm not going to start an argument with Nick Garcia, for instance. Discretion tends to take over from valor where our opponents are more powerful than we are. Pharaoh was the most powerful man in the world when Moses came to see him. About the only restraint there was on Pharaoh's wickedness was the holy arm and hand of God. All God had to do to harden Pharaoh further was to remove that hand. The evil inclinations of Pharaoh did the rest. In the active passive in the act of passive hardening, God makes a decision to remove the restraints. The wicked part of the process is done by Pharaoh himself. God does no violence to Pharaoh's will. He just gives him more freedom. Sproul says that when we study this pattern of God's punishment of wicked men, we see kind of a poetic justice emerging um, at the end of the Bible. In the final judgment scene in the book of Revelation, we read the following. He who is unjust, let him be unjust still. He who is filthy, let him be filthy still. He who is righteous, let him be righteous still. He who is holy, let him be holy still. So ultimately, at the end, God gives people over to what they really are inside. God's ultimate act of judgment is to give sinners over to their sin. He abandons them to their own desire. So it is with Pharaoh. By this act of judgment, God did not blemish his own righteousness by creating more evil he established his own righteousness by punishing the evil that was already there in Pharaoh. This is how we must understand this double predestination. God gives mercy to the elect by working faith in their hearts. He gives justice to the reprobate by leaving them in their own sins. There is no symmetry here. One group receives mercy. The other group receives justice. No one is a victim of injustice. None can complain 
that there's in any unrighteousness in God. A significant uh, passage in the New Testament that concerns double predestination is found in Romans uh, 9, uh, verses 9 through 18, where it says, For this is the promise said, About this time next year I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. What shall I say? What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will I have compassion. So it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. So here we have the clearest biblical expression we can find for the concept of double predestination. It is stated without reservation and without ambiguity. Therefore, he has mercy on whom he wills, and and whom he wills he hardens. Some people get mercy, others get justice. The decision is in the hand of God. Paul illustrates the double character of predestination as in his reference to Jacob and Esau just a couple weeks ago. Um, our family was uh, together, and I'm a firstborn, and I was talking to my firstborn. And some people talk about firstborns like Esau uh, being kind of bossy, but we decided that it's not that we're bossy, it's just that we have better ideas, so we're naturally in charge. So maybe that's why God passed over Esau, just too hard to work with. Uh, I don't know. So, But these two men were twin brothers. One received the blessing of God and one did not. One received a special portion of the love of God and the other did not. Esau was hated by God. And that divine hatred is an expression uh, that doesn't mean insidious attitude of malice towards him. It's what... Uh, David earlier called a holy hatred. Divine hatred is not malicious. It involves a withholding of favor. God is for those whom he loves. He turns his face against those wicked who are not the objects of his special redemptive favor. Those whom he loves receive his mercy, and those whom he hates receive his justice. So why did God choose Jacob and not uh, Jacob and not Esau? Some believe that God must have foreseen something in Jacob that justified the special favor, that God looked down the corridors of time and saw Jacob making the right choice and Esau making the wrong choice. When Paul wrote to the Romans, if he had been writing as an exponent of foreknowledge, the foreknowledge view, it would not have been difficult to make the point clear. This was Paul's golden opportunity to teach the foreknowledge view of predestination. It would have been strange indeed that he didn't take this opportunity. But this is no argument from silence. Paul does not remain mute on the subject. He labors the opposite point. He emphasizes the fact that God's decision was made before the birth 
of those twins, Jacob and Esau, and without any view to their future actions. His phrase in verse 11 is crucial. For the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, for that purpose, for the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. Why does the apostle labor this point that the decree was not only made from all eternity, but was made before any one of these people had been born and done anything good or evil. If Paul were teaching the foreknowledge view of predestination here, it would have made sense for him to stop after saying Jacob and Esau were predestined before they were born. By adding, nor having done any good or evil, Paul makes it clear that divine predestination is based on God not on us. The accent here is clearly on the work of God. Paul emphatically denies that election is the work of man, foreseen or otherwise. It is the purpose of God according to his election. That's we're considering here. That's in view that he's uh, explaining. So Sproul goes on in his book and says that while Paul is silent about the question of future choices, In verse 11, he does not remain so. In verse 16, he makes it eminently clear where it says, So then it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. This is the coup de grace to Arminianism and all other non-reformed views of predestination. This is the word of God that requires all Christians to cease and desist from views of predestination that make the ultimate decision of salvation rest in man. The apostle declares it is not of him who wills. The Arminian view says that it is of him who wills. This is a violent contradiction to the teaching of Scripture. This one verse is absolutely fatal to an Arminian view. It is our duty to honor God. We must confess with the apostle that our election is not based on our wills, but on the purpose of God. Let me finish. I'm not going to finish. (laughs) Another question we need to look at real quickly here is God arbitrary. That God chooses us not because of what he finds in us, but according to his own good pleasure, gives rise to the charge that this makes God arbitrary. It suggests that God makes his selection in a whimsical or capricious manner. It seems that like our election is the result of blind and frivolous uh, lottery. If we are elect, then it's only because we are lucky. God pulled our names out of the hat. To be arbitrary arbitrary is to do something for no reason. Now, it's clear that there is no reason found in us for God to choose us, but that's not the same as saying that God himself has no reason for choosing us. God doesn't do anything without a reason. He's not capricious or whimsical. God is as sober as he is sovereign. God does not operate by chance. We He knew who he would select. He foreknew, that is, foreloved his elect. It was not a blind draw because God is not blind. Yet we must still insist that it was nothing that he foreknew, foresaw, 
for foreloved in us that was the decisive reason for his choice. Sproul said that if we hold to this doctrine, we may not generally like to speak of luck. Instead of wishing people good luck, we might want to say providential blessings. Um, Yet, if we were going to talk about something being our lucky day, we would all have to agree that um, and we would mark that day in eternity when God decided to choose us, wouldn't we? So there's that also to consider. And uh, some other things here. Uh, one of the things that Sproul refers to uh, regarding our sanctification is uh, a sermon by a Scottish preacher, uh, Eric Alexander, in which he stressed that God is working in us for his good pleasure. Paul does not say that God is working in us for our good pleasure. And he's referring here to the, the um, verse in Philippians, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his own good pleasure. We are not always entirely pleased by what God is doing in our lives. Sometimes we experience a conflict between the purpose of God and our own purpose. I never choose to suffer on purpose, at least not knowingly. (laughs) Yet it it, it may uh, be well uh, within the sovereign purpose of God that I do suffer. He promises us that by his sovereignty all things work together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And that's stated in Romans 8, as you may know. My purposes do not always include God's good. I am a sinner. Fortunately for us, God's not. So he is altogether righteous, and his purposes are always and everywhere righteous. His purposes work for my good, even when his purposes are in conflict with my purposes, which are sometimes distorted by my sin nature. Perhaps I should say especially when his purposes are in conflict with my purposes. What pleases him is good for me. This is one of the most difficult questions I think we've all got to learn. There is one caveat to election. Our election is unconditional except for one thing. There is one requirement we must meet before God will ever elect us. To be elect, we must first be sinners. God doesn't elect righteous people unto salvation. He does not need to elect righteous people. Um, They don't need to be saved. Only sinful, sinful people are in need of a Savior, aren't we? Those who are... Um, well, have no need of a physician. They don't need to be fixed. Christ came to seek and to save those who were lost. God sent him into the world not only to make our salvation possible, but to make it sure. Christ has not died in vain. His sheep are saved through his sinless life and atoning death. There is nothing arbitrary or capricious about that. What are some encouragements we can take away from election, from this doctrine? Steve 
uses uh, this slide in BTI, and I think it's worth looking at again. We can be encouraged because it's a decision of God to save certain specific in, uh, individuals um, and conform them to the image of Christ. Election is, ba- uh, is placed before the foundation of the world. It is unconditional in that it is based on God's sovereign divine will and not what we will do. Election is in Christ. Election is presented as a comfort to us. That's why it's told to us and explained to us. Election is a reason to praise God. Election is an encouragement for evangelism. We know there are people out there that will receive our message. Election is a reason for not being too hard on ourselves when we do explain the gospel and people reject So let's loop back around to the beginning. So how does this doctrine of election and the life-saving boats, how do they connect? Let me read to you Romans. How then will they call on him on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes by hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. So our task is to get in in the boat. Don't be silent. We all know someone that's drowning. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for this time. We pray that we might uh, come to appreciate your sovereignty even to a greater level and that with that understanding we can have confidence in our salvation and the surety of it and that we might be bold in our witness to uh, those around us that are dying every day. We pray that we... Uh, might be faithful witnesses and good disciples and good emissaries of Christ in that regard. And we thank you this morning in Christ's name. Amen.